0: John chapter 10, verse 9. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you that you're the one who knows uh, the story behind every face in this room. And I just pray that by the gentle power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, Lord. (laughs) To anyone that's even giving you like the tiniest crack in the door, would you hospitably come in and speak their exact language through these ancient words that live today, Jesus. Amen. So if you were to read the biography of any famous figure, anyone from Gandhi to Mandela to Martin Luther King, Jr. to Frederick Douglass, you'll notice a pattern that the biographer tends to write chapter after chapter after chapter on their life. And then there's a little sliver at the end devoted to their death. But all four of Jesus biographers reverse the formula. They devote a staggering amount of real estate to his death. John, who wrote last after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already in circulation, uh, is the most obvious. He gives more than a third of his Gospel to Jesus' final 24 hours, a day that Jesus spent on trial and in execution. A series of legal hearings with different authorities culminating in this cry from the crowds who were stirred up by the priests of all people, Give us Barabbas! Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising, Now, this English word uprising is the Greek lestes, which means robber or rebel. The priests wanted to trade Jesus for a robber. Remember that. It will matter for you later. John slows the story down tremendously for Jesus' trial, but he also doesn't save the trial for the end. Scholars will point out that John, of all the gospel writers, uh, tends to put Jesus on trial in scene after scene after scene, intentionally making his readers into something like members of the jury. So in chapter 1, he presents Jesus as the light that breaks the dark, but also tells us that most people didn't recognize him as the light. The question being, what do you make of him and then that pattern continues through philip and nathaniel with the priest nicodemus with the samaritan woman at a well and story after story we are presented this jesus and given the opportunity to make our own evaluation and make of him what we want who is this man this man who never wrote a book, but about whom more books have been written than anyone who's ever lived. Who, who is this man who is the furthest thing from royalty and yet more knees have bowed before him than any king? This man who never got a degree, but whose teachings have been the subject of more study and introspection than any teacher of any variety. This man who never once posed for a photograph, and yet his image has been the subject of more art than any person who's ever lived. This man whose life was cut tragically short and yet whose life divides history, whose uh, we measure our calendars and the span of our lives based on his short life. Who is this Jesus? The greatest man who ever lived? More than a man? Or the spellbinder behind history's most exceptional ruse? Who is this Jesus? And is he worth paying any attention to and does his life have anything to do with my life? You get to decide. So we're in the midst of a teaching series and practice that we've titled, Knowing God, The Seven I Am Statements of Jesus. Uh, Moses famously stood before a burning bush, hearing God speak to him and responded, who are you? What is your name? And God said, I am, or I am who I am, a name that Jesus then picked up and applied to himself again and again. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. That's where we've been so far. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am, and then adds a little bit more color and description to that original I am. And up for today is I am the gate. So as I hope you're starting to get used to by now, everywhere else I go on the scripture today is going to be on the screen. However, the passage that we just read from in John chapter 10, I want you to follow along with me on the page so you can see how we're tracing the story to the revelation for yourself. So just keep your Bible open in your lap to John chapter 10 and I'll take you everywhere else, but I want you to follow me there. I am the gate, a name that Jesus identified himself by requires that we trace our way through John's narrative backwards, not forwards. Let me show you. First comes the parable. When Jesus made this emphatic statement that we just read as our teaching text, it was coming right off the back of a parable. And if we're going to understand the name, we're going to have to understand the parable. So look back with me at John chapter 10. We'll rewind to verse 2. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So Jesus is painting a picture that would have been super familiar in the ancient Near Eastern world where shepherds were as common as coffee shops and breweries are these days in Portland. Uh, they would These sheep pens that he's describing though uh, aren't like what might immediately jump to your mind, something like a fence with a single latch or the gate that you would enter. Instead, they were more like rooms that were constructed outdoors with a solid wall. That was to prevent animal predators from being able to see the sheep and potentially attack them. But they had no ceiling or no roof on them they were open to the sky and there was only a single door or gate by which the shepherd would come in and out of the sheep pen Jesus calls himself the gate as in the only way in and out he is making a statement of exclusivity here but exclusivity to what exactly Well, there's a number of literary cues, particularly in this parable, that make it clear that Jesus is speaking directly about relationship with the Father, or relationship with God. He's saying, I am the gate. I'm the only way to know God. I am the exclusive entry point to relationship with your Creator. And what he said figuratively in this parable, he then became quite demonstrative about with his disciples in his final 24 hours, where he said, in essence, to them, uh, All that you've seen me do, the way you've seen me living, the way you've watched me relating to my Father, all of that is now available to you. I am the access point to that relationship, that life. I am the gate. But that's still not even close to all that Jesus is saying. We've got to work our way back even further from here to grasp it because there's a phrase in verse 1 that we brushed past that unlocks the real purpose behind everything Jesus said. Verse 1 begins this way. Very truly I tell you Pharisees, So in this parable, Jesus is not talking to the crowds, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the priests of his time, and he's not sitting down with them in the temple for a scheduled meeting or standing up behind the pulpit in a formal setting. Jesus is speaking reactively. He's just witnessed something, and what he's witnessed is causing him to speak out this parable. So if we're gonna understand the parable, and then more importantly, the name, we're going to have to see what Jesus saw, and at least in some sense be moved by it like Jesus was. So this is the inciting incident in the previous chapter, John chapter nine. I'm gonna take you back to the very story where Christian took us last week. Jesus and his disciples encounter a blind man, blind from birth. He came out of the womb, living in the dark, and has lived every day of his life in the dark. But Jesus being Jesus, he heals this man of his blindness. Now, among the village, that caused great wonder. As it would if a friend of yours, who's used a walking stick every day of his life to feel his way through the world, is suddenly walking around with his eyes wide open like anyone else. Among the village, there was wonder, but within the temple, the healing caused controversy. So the Pharisees investigate the healing. They put Jesus on trial. It's another scene for you and I to walk alongside this healed blind man and his wonderstruck neighbors and the suspicious priests to make of him what we make of him. So first, they question the healed man. They're immediately offended because they discover that Jesus has worked this miracle on the Sabbath the weekly 24-hour period for holy rest in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus healed someone, work, on the day of rest. John nine sixteen. some of the Pharisees said, this man cannot be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So next they call more witnesses, this man's parents. Are you sure this is your son? And are you absolutely certain that he was born blind? Picking him in verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. You see, at this time in Hebrew history, it was thought that to be born blind or with any sort of a disability like this was a curse from God, a divine curse so severe that there must be some egregious and likely secret sin within the family behind this kind of curse. And for that reason, the blind were at times excluded from the temple. It is quite possible that this investigation of his own healing is the first time this blind man has ever set foot in the first century temple. It's quite possible that he has never had an interaction with a priest until this moment when they're questioning the greatest thing that's ever happened to him. It's quite possible that he grew up excluded from the holiday celebrations and the feasts and the prayers and the gatherings that the rest of the village went to. So to be blind was more than just a physical disability. It was also to be communally ostracized. And of course, all the logic behind that was tragically misguided, but it was also quite common. I mean, even Jesus' own disciples ask him at the beginning of this very story Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. So this blind man is suffering on two levels. He's suffering from blindness, a physical disability, but he's also suffering from shame, an inner hidden wound he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So his own parents, given the opportunity to defend their son, to wash him of all of the social stigma, uh, to remove his shame, didn't do any of that. They feared losing their own social status. They feared being seen and treated the same way that their son was seen and treated. So they held on to their status, and they left him alone in his shame. And then finally the priest called this man back in, their first witness, the blind man whose eyes are suddenly opened. And they question him further. They try to get him to condemn Jesus, to attribute his own healing to some kind of black magic. And when he responds instead with gratitude and wonder, they drop the gavel and issue the final verdict. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. The priests, given the opportunity to behold God in their midst, to be awed and at how close the presence of the God that they preach has really come to them, instead, fear losing their own social status. They fear honoring the one they've ostracized. And so they hold on to their status and leave him alone in his shame. Trauma. That's the psychological term behind what this blind man is experiencing. Trauma is a later 17th century word of English origin that literally means wound. Our modern English definitions define trauma as a disordered psychic or behavioral state resulting from severe mental or emotional stress or physical injury. The author and therapist uh, Rizma Menachem defined trauma as a wordless story our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. Now putting all three of those together, the author and pastor Rich Velotas defines trauma this way. The state of woundedness and the story that arises from living in that state. So trauma is not just being wounded, it's the story that arises from living wounded. Our pain, our physical, mental, and emotional pain, the pain that we have a responsibility in and the pain that we are completely innocent victims of, it all causes us to compensate, right? If you hurt your leg, you walk around with a limp because your body is compensating for the pain. Or if, you, if you're hurt emotionally, if someone says something that kind of pricks your insecurity, you get quiet, you turn inward, because your emotions are compensating for the pain. Or if you have a migraine, you lay down and close your eyes, your body is compensating for the pain. But eventually, of course, the leg heals and you stop limping and that comment that pricked your insecurity fades and you feel at home again in your own skin or the migraine goes away and you get up. But some pain becomes chronic. The injury causing the limp is never treated, and now I walk around every day for the rest of my life with that limp. The pain has become a part of me or that emotional pain gets internalized and then you begin to define yourself by it. You become the sort of person who is battling low self-esteem chronically through a crippling sense of insecurity or through volatile outbursts of anger. Or, Or you're defined by some experience that made you less than you really are in a way that you're completely unaware of. And there are wounds that you're carrying from your childhood or a previous place in your life that you are living from and are telling stories through your life but you don't see those wounds, even while they're hurting you, the pain becomes a part of us, and that is trauma. It's a wound that doesn't heal, and so it tells a story through my life. It's a pain that I live from. And the psychologist Kurt Thompson, he divides trauma into two categories, type one and type two trauma. Type one trauma refers to single incidents that are unexpected and painful, wounding us instantly in ways that are impossible to process. One in five Americans was sexually abused in childhood. One in three couples engages in physical violence. One in every eight people has a close relative who's an alcoholic. I'm sorry, one in every four. One in every eight children witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. All of these are common examples of type one trauma. And so are other events, accidental events that that have no clear perpetrator or victims, things like uh, a car accident or a medical diagnosis or the loss of a loved one. That's also type one trauma. And then there's type 1 trauma that's a little bit more complex because it's some way that we were neglected or mistreated at an age too young to see that mistreatment, and yet it still came to define us. Things like a lack of nourishment received in infancy, or being passed around from home to home through different foster care placements as a toddler, or maybe the departure of a parent when we could not process the relational complexity behind that departure, or blindness from birth resulting in everyone ostracizing you, whispering about you and making up stories about you, resulting in you not being allowed into the spaces that everyone else is allowed in. All of that is type one trauma. Now, type 2 trauma refers to more complex wounding experiences, wounds that are inflicted uh, often subtly and over longer periods of time that almost always involve people that are relationally close to us, someone like a parent or a relative, a close friend, or an authority figure. And often, this type of trauma is so subtle That it is hard to recognize or name it as trauma, making it very difficult for us to trace our stories back to these wounds, and yet they are equally defining for our present. There's this heartbreaking scene in John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. Uh, Cyrus is the father in the story, at least at the beginning, and then he has two children, Charles and Adam and Cyrus's birthday is coming up and Charles has saved up and bought this German pocket knife that he's picked out particularly for his dad And he's bought it weeks ago and is so excited to give it to him, he's carefully wrapped it, he's hidden it in the house and he has anticipated his father's birthday night. So he's sitting there at the dining room table in the family house, like squirming with excitement, hiding this thing under the table, waiting for the right moment to break it out, waiting for the perfect moment, the one that he's thought about and romanticized and looked forward to. And just as that moment comes in the dinner and he's about to pull out the pocket knife that he's wrapped, His twin brother, Adam, pulls out a gift that he's given to their dad. One that was very nonchalant and not particularly thoughtful. He didn't even bother to buy it. It was just something that he found. He didn't wrap the thing. It was just the the low-maintenance gesture that was appropriate for the occasion. But look, Cyrus is a dad. So he's not grading the worth of his children's gifts. He he responds to it like a good father. He makes a big deal about it all Adam, I love it. It's so cool. You picked this out just for, Oh, thank you so much. Charles just sits there quietly, deflated, because his moment, the one no one knew about but him, was stolen. Eventually he does give his dad his gift, but he also felt robbed, robbed uh, of the way that that he had imagined the moment playing out. Robbed because That gift came just after his brothers, but he didn't say a word of that. I mean, he felt every bit of that, but he didn't say a word of it. He just sat there at the dinner and then went on to bed. And that heartbreaking scene, it runs under hundreds of pages of this epic story until these two brothers have grown old into adulthood. And in an adult argument, this erupts out of Charles as he screams at Adam, look at his birthday. I saved up for months, picked it out just for him. It had all the tools he needed, handmade, just his taste. Have you ever seen him use it? Have you ever even noticed the outline of a knife in his pants pocket? And there it is. Decades later, the mysterious distance that has lived between these twin brothers finally gets named. Something broke in Charles that night quietly and invisibly broke. Charles never came all the way back from his father's birthday dinner. That is type two trauma. It inflicts pain just as violently, but so much more subtly. And the rest of the novel is just a story about trauma. It's about living out of pain, about a story that gets into one brother's mind that then becomes the lens through which he views all of reality. It's a story about unlovableness and a story about envy, a story about earning a father's love. All of that from a birthday gift exchange and a wound that no one saw. John chapter nine is a story like that. Where all of that, from a blind boy sitting alone outside of the temple during the holiday celebration, from being the one that is whispered about as all the people pass by, from being the one whose own parents weren't willing to take him to the place that the community gathered you see this blind man in John 9 he, he wasn't just a blind man he was also a victim of trauma of type 1 trauma like a physical disability in young age that changes your experience of the world and of type 2 trauma like the shame that you carry in this time and place because of that disability and biblically this theme of trauma it's it's depicted as hiding Right? Adam and Eve step outside of God's loving provision and care because they trust a deceiver who wants to wound them rather than a good shepherd who wants to shelter and protect them. They're deceived by an alternative story. And sure, they have a part to play in that deception. They have to choose to act on the lie that is whispered to them. And when they do, immediately... They hide from one another and they hide from God. And in that moment, the human experience went from one of communion to one of separation. Looked at through a psychological lens, the Bible is a story about trauma. It's about a wound and it's a story of living from that woundedness. It's about an inciting incident like blindness and then a long story of pain like shame. We're all wounded. There is no version of life outside of Eden that avoids pain. And unless we hear a familiar voice calling our names, then we all live our unique story of woundedness. We all live traumatized. The physician Dr. Paul Brand, because of his faith, chose to turned down the typical uh, Western medical route, and instead at the height of his career, in his prime, he moved to India to care for the leprous and terminally ill, and he wrote an article after a series of groundbreaking medical discoveries about how to best care for the terminally ill, and particularly lepers, he wrote a well-known article titled The Gift of Pain, in which he argues that from the perspective of the leprous, the pain is not a curse, but a gift. And his logic goes something like this. I mean, let's say that right after this, you came over to my home for lunch and, and we were standing in my kitchen and I just leaned my full weight and set my hand on the counter. But instead of setting it on the counter, I laid it right on the hot burner of my stove. Then what would I immediately do? Or I would jump up and scream and wave my hand off because an alarm bell would go from my hand into my brain that says, this hurts. And I would immediately, instinctively flee from that pain. But if I had advanced leprosy, then the nerve endings in my hand likely would have died. And I would lean there, placing my hand on the hot burner of my stove, and the pain and damage would be being inflicted on me, but the alarm bells would be silenced. No alarm bell shooting from my hand to my brain, and so I would just lean there. All the damage is still happening, but the lack of pain has removed the alert, and that's what trauma does over time. We stop feeling the pain, the alarm bells stop sounding, and instead of jumping away from pain, we lose the ability to recognize pain altogether, even as it's damaging us. How have you been wounded? What violent or subtle ways have you been hurt? What type one or type two traumas do you carry? or to ask that question biblically, in what ways are you hiding? And have my wounds come to define me? Define me so entirely that the alarm bells have stopped. I no longer recognize the pain, even while it's damaging me. See, we know the blind man in John nine, because we are the blind man. In John 9, every last one of us, me, you, him, her. So speaking to our trauma, Jesus shows up to say, I am the good shepherd. I'm sorry, I am the gate. Good shepherd's coming next week. That part will be helpful too. (laughs) Now this statement, it's both an invitation and an accusation. So let's start with the latter, with the accusation. Look back with me at John chapter 10. We're going to start right in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. Did you catch what Jesus just called the priests? Robber. The Greek, lestes, the very word that they would later use to accuse him at his trial. I told you to hang on to this bit, Remember? Now, now it's very interesting that Jesus uses this word, lestus, because he uses it on a number of occasions, but he only ever directs it at the Pharisees. Every time Jesus says this word, it's a word of accusation toward the priests. It's what he said when they came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Am I leading a rebellion, lestus, said Jesus? That you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, he's saying, why are you treating me as a robber? What uprising have I stirred up? What crime have I committed that you would approach me like I'm a violent man? Jesus said this word when he stormed into the temple courts, turning over the tables. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers, lest us. And when Jesus said that in the temple, he was quoting the prophet Jeremiah. And when Jesus uses that very word in this story, calling the priests robbers in John 10, he is tugging on a prophetic picture that everyone, the priests on the receiving end of the accusation and the wonderstruck villagers who have gathered around to hear it, every last one of them would know just the picture that Jesus is pulling into the present. That picture is in Ezekiel 34. Let me read it to you. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Wild animals, that is a prophetic reference to Gentile nations. This is a shorthand way to say our shepherds have left us exposed. They haven't cared for us, haven't sheltered us, haven't protected us or provided for us. They've left us alone to fend for ourselves on the wrong side of the gate. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Now pull that ancient picture with you back to John chapter 10. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Only the true shepherd comes in by the gate and anyone else using the sheep rather than protecting and providing climbs over the wall to jump into the sheep pen by some other way. Then jump down to verse seven. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Everyone in that crowd, most notably the priests themselves, would have known exactly what Jesus is saying. He's repainting Ezekiel's picture in reaction to what he's just witnessed as a way of saying, now. Ezekiel's ancient prophecy is happening right now. Now it's coming to fulfillment. And that is both an accusation toward those who were supposed to be the shepherds, and it's a promise of a coming shepherd. Because Ezekiel goes on to say this, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search after my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel and in the ravines and settlements of the land. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. The very accusation Jesus speaks against the priests in John 10. They use against him at the other end of the story. To lay a cross on his back. And he let them. He let them. He let us. Wound him. And that, among other things, is what makes Jesus a very different kind of shepherd than the priests. In a word, he's meek. One of the most jaw-dropping and misunderstood words in the whole of the Bible. See, these days we almost always hear meek alongside mild, right? The good shepherd, meek and mild. But that's misleading, I mean, Jesus was meek for sure, but he definitely was not mild, right? Like mild is what we call the G-rated salsa. And Jesus is something with habanero, right? Like not for the faint of heart. I mean, Jesus has just finished a public stinging rebuke aimed at the most socially powerful, widely respected, spiritually revered priests. And this is not the only time he does it. This rabbi is not mild, but he's definitely meek an English word from the ancient Greek, praus. It's a word picture that refers to a gentle breeze, meaning something incredibly powerful but under control. Wind is the force behind a gentle breeze and behind a violent hurricane. It's it's wind, but a breeze is wind composed and restrained in a way that can be delighted in rather than overwhelmed by, and that's Jesus. Power under control incredibly powerful but restrained for our sakes, that we might delight in him rather than be overwhelmed by him. See, most people when they imagine Jesus as the good shepherd, they picture a gentle rabbi cuddling a lamb, but I think that's the wrong picture. I think we tend to imagine him mild when the truth is that he's meek. The truth is Jesus is powerful enough to open the eyes of a blind man, but he's also meek enough to enter into that blind man's pain with him because Jesus, just like this blind man in John 9, was also treated as a second-class citizen with no status. He was looked at through a tragic misconception, the same way the blind man was. The same rabbis who investigate the blind man's healing were equally suspicious of Jesus' origins at his birth and his teachings during his ministry. He was accused unfairly, even when all he was doing was helping the helpless, and eventually he was thrown out of the very same temple altogether, only to have a cross laid across his back. God revealed in Jesus is breathtakingly meek. But this meek Jesus... He does become very direct as a protector of the helpless, a protector of the wounded, a protector of the traumatized. He is saying publicly and clearly to these priests, when one of my kid's traumas becomes a way for you to massage your ego and accrue social status, I do not take that lightly. See, that is what Jesus is saying in this stinging accusation. He's saying, I am the gate. I am the God meek enough to meet you on your level, to walk in your shoes, to companion you through your trauma. And I am the God powerful enough to defend you against the accuser and protect you from the robber. That's the accusation. But then there's also an invitation. And it comes in these three parts. Hear, receive, and live. So invitation part one, hear my voice. Now look, this may have already been really obvious to you. But this blind man heard Jesus long before he ever saw Jesus. The only way our wounds don't turn into trauma, pain turned into story. And the only way our trauma gets redeemed, a story defined by pain to a story defined by love, is to hear a familiar voice telling an alternative story. You know, we all come into the world the same way. Lost, traumatized, completely alone, and listening for a voice that we recognize. A baby is traumatized by the sudden exit from the warmth and safety of the womb into the dark, or to to the cold unknown of the outside world. And newborn babies are, are essentially blind. I mean, they can hardly see. Every crying newborn is only caught by one thing the sound of their mother's voice. Because every fetus grows in the mother's womb, hearing her speaking, singing, humming her way through her day. And then that voice becomes familiar and soothing. Every one of us in the opening moments of our life was calmed by the sound of a familiar voice in an unfamiliar place. John chapter 10, verse 3. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all on his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. There's two different kinds of shepherds, uh, leading and driving. Driving shepherds, which are common in Australia, lead the flock from behind using their staff to prod the back of the sheep to move them in a particular direction. Leading shepherds, which are more common in the eastern part of the world, lead the the sheep from in front and the sheep follow. You see, sheep have incredible peripheral vision, but they can see almost nothing directly in front of them. Most people say only to the end of their nose. And that means that sheep follow a leading shepherd by the sound of their voice not the direction that they're walking. Leading shepherds have to talk all the time because it's how the sheep know where to go. In fact, leading shepherds typically have individual names for each sheep in the flock so that they are able to lead the flock as a whole, but also redirect and speak to each sheep individually. So an Eastern shepherd, the kind that Jesus would have grown up around and been familiar with, lead the sheep by their voice. Jesus is a leading shepherd, not a driving shepherd, because trauma is counteracted by love, and love is always invitational and never demanded. Love is being wooed by his voice, not pushed and prodded by his staff. Jesus speaks to us invitationally, and Jesus speaks to us individually. He moves the flock, and he knows your name. Pick up where we left off in verse five, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. So again, back to the ancient Near East, Uh, it was common for strangers to try to steal the flock of another shepherd by climbing over the sheep pen because they don't have access to the gate, often dressing in the shepherd's clothing to even try to mimic their scent and trying to mimic the shepherd's call But the vast majority of the time, this did not result in a successful deception. It would scatter the sheep rather than gathering them because sheep's sense of hearing allowed them to recognize a counterfeit and that would incite fear, not trust, scattering the flock all over, not leading them to a particular place. Jesus is saying to the traumatized, hear my voice. But simultaneously, he's saying to the priests, in this case, the traumatizers, Those who belong to me will never follow a robber. Second part of the invitation, receive my healing. So Jesus went and found this blind man again in John 9. If you keep tracking the story, he's thrown out of the temple and Jesus goes and finds him again. He did not only heal this man's body, opening his eyes, he also healed his soul, treating his shame. Empathy almost always emerges from having some shared experience. Jesus is a healer, yes, absolutely, but he's the kind of doctor who has dealt personally with the same disease you carry and felt its symptoms on his own. He's like a heart surgeon who's gone under the knife or an OB who has struggled and battled infertility or a pediatrician who's lost their own child to leukemia. So you're sitting in front of a doctor who has personal experience with the symptoms of the disease that you carry. Don't you see the profound difference in this kind of healer? Jesus called the Pharisees robbers because they were calling themselves healers, but they were doing so while hiding their wounds, right? They're trying to come into the sheep pen, but they're trying to come in wounded, not by the gate. I'm sorry, unwounded, not by the gate. And the healing that Jesus offers, it does not come from status or expertise or being able to rattle off the right prescription. It comes through his wounds, right? That's what we've been singing already today. Right, your stripes, my healing. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is set apart from the Pharisees. He's set apart from the ancient Greek gods, from Muhammad, from Buddha, from the Dalai Lama. Jesus is set apart from every other spiritual teacher and from every other divine claimer by this, his scars. Of all the world's religions, only Christianity dares to show us a God who is wounded. And that's good news because the deepest kind of healing comes not through his miracles, but through his wounds. It's not by his power, it's by his meekness, his willingness to restrain power that we might delight in him, not be overwhelmed by him. Shepherds in Jesus' day would commonly sleep across the gate at night. They would go in to lay their body during the period of time when they are most vulnerable. They would lay their body down to protect the sheep. Hebrews says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus offers us a God of empathy because he's meek. He is power but restrained. He's become like us in all of our limitations, even feeling our pain, but pain did not get the best of him. Pain did not define him. He made a way through trauma, the trauma that we carry and the trauma that we inflict on others. Hebrews continues, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now this phrase, able to save completely, it is the ancient Greek pantelis, a word that summarizes these three ideas, comprehensiveness, completeness, and exhaustive wholeness. And you'll find this word only one other place in the Bible. It's in Luke 13, when Jesus healed a woman who had been disabled and bent over for 18 years. He gives her the ability to stand up straight. He heals her pantelis completely. The point being made here in Hebrews is that Jesus did not just make a way for you and I to to hobble through life and make it to the end in one piece. He's made a way for us to stand up straight, to run, jump, laugh, and even dance on our own graves, to laugh in the face of death. He's removed every sting. Jesus did not just heal a blind man's eyes. He went back and found him after he was ostracized to heal him pantelis, to heal his shame. And that, the today experience of the cosmic victory won for me through his life, that is the healing of the God with scars. And then finally, there's a third part of this invitation. Live my life. Verse 10, the end of the story. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Aren't you tired of living out of your trauma? Tired of a story that's defined by wounds. Tired of pain that you felt for so long. It's become a part of you. Or maybe you're just beginning to become aware of the pain that's become a part of you and the story that it's telling through the life that you live. What if there's a God that's gone such great lengths that he doesn't want to confine you in some uh, cell of, of tight, rigid morality. But he wants to redeem you, to live the fullest, freest kind of life. So the invitation of Jesus is to come back to Eden, back to the Good Shepherd's Love and Care, to His protection and provision, to come out of hiding, out of the deceiver's lies, and back into life. And He says, I am the only way in. I am the only way. The only way you come into the life that you were always made to know and are endlessly searching for is through the gate. It's through my life. I am the gate, meaning I am the only meek shepherd. I am the only wounded healer. I am the only life giver. And so this week's practice is up right now at Bridgetown.Church. And if you're new around here, we think of the church in two ways is church around a stage when we gather on Sundays but equally important is church around the table we meet in homes midweek because that's where all of this goes from story into practice it is where we put into practice all that we're talking about here today if you're in a Bridgetown community this is old news if you're not in a Bridgetown community the way in is through community basics we do it three times a year starts to begin on February 5th and registration is open right now this is your wildly public and general invitation But I do want to end today exactly where we began. With the question that John poses in scene after scene after scene. Who is this Jesus? A healer or a fraud? The way to the fullest kind of life? Or just another fairy tale to cope with life's inevitable trauma? But nothing more than a fairy tale. Is he the gate for the sheep? Or is he another spiritual storyteller who's looking to take advantage of the already traumatized? You get to decide. But I would just offer this, that at many points in history, belief has been so common that the courageous thing was to doubt. But you know, these days, doubt has become so common that I do wonder if the courageous and rebellious thing might be to take a risk on belief He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who knows you by name. He is the familiar voice that can calm your anxiety, that can heal your wounds in an unfamiliar place. Do you hear him calling to you? Again? Or for the first time?